Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. We're back. <laughs> yes, in strange times too. We're back online. Yep. We're, we haven't been in a room together in like seven months or something. Yeah. Well, I because you and I hung out on my deck not long ago. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't a room. No, it wasn't a room. We weren't inside a room. <laughs> so yeah, about seven months since we were able to record inside. Yeah. And a lot has been happening. I mean, we we met through to June, but this summer, a lot's been going on, right? Calling it the summer of protest. It's different from the summer of love, which you and I missed. Yep. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't get that one. We get summer of protest. We just get the protests, but you could view them as a kind of love. Well, actually, I do view them as a kind of love. It's love in action or love on the street. Exactly. Yes. And we are on the eve of a very important election. Um, and I think both of those things sort of come together under this world of sort of like, how does love be, be, get put into action, right? What does politics have to do with love? What does politics have to do with religion values? How do we sort of live our ethical stance in a country that has a longstanding sort of myth of separation of church and state? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I think people get very confused by the relationship between religion and politics and the relationship between church and state, which is a specific legal definition, right? <clears throat> the disestablishment, which really was about how churches were funded and supported for you know all of Christian history. So that when this country was founded, the idea was let's disentangle so that churches can be free, and actually it was seen as a way of supporting the churches. Churches can be free to do what they need to do and to have freedom of thought and freedom of religion without the federal government supporting any particular denomination. So the idea was that clergy weren't paid from your taxes and that your taxes didn't pay for one church to you know, get a new roof or that kind of thing, that the church financially was going to stand on its own and that they could grow without being, without having to worry about uh, the federal government. Essentially, <laughs> yeah, it's been defined by the Supreme Court as, as making sure that no, no law is particularly religious, it has a secular purpose, that no law helps or hinders any religious expression, and that uh, the law doesn't entangle government with religion. I mean, those are kind of the basic, you know, so the idea is legal, but it's become cultural, right? We have this sort of general feeling like, 
religion could stay away from politics. And, and it, on the other hand, we get all excited when we see clergy at the front line of a protest, right? Yeah, well, and so so let's go back for a second because you you have some you know knowledge in this area, right? Around sort of how historically church and state has played out in this country, right? So in that First Amendment, right, where it talks about respecting the establishment of religion and protecting the freedom of um, expression or exercise, what is it, exercise thereof, right? <laughs> so like, I think people look at that and they go, so like, totally separate. Religion and politics can't have anything to do with each other. You cannot talk about religion and talk about politics in the same breath, right? Um, but you're sort of saying, and I, and I think this is true, right? That had a lot to do with the mechanisms of money and taxes and um, and less to do with some idea that you could somehow objectively separate your religious world and your vote, you know, for example. Right. The idea that you could somehow disentangle your value system from how you're going to vote right wasn't really what was in the mind of the folks writing those documents no that would never have occurred to anybody i mean there was this idea of the separation of church and state which was written into the virginia constitution but that still had nothing to do with how we live our lives right that our religion informs our value systems and we vote our values and we march our values and we speak our values. I mean, this is, there's no way to disentangle these. And it was never the intention. The intention was like, let's stop paying clergy from the tobacco tax. I mean, that was. Well, and there was a piece, right, about like, there won't be a, maybe I'm making this up. There's a piece about like, there's not going to be a religious test of people, right? Yeah. Wasn't that, that was part of it too, was about everybody should be free to practice the religion they want to practice without having to like affirm a particular belief in order to make your vote, right? <laughs> right, well, the idea was when people came here, right, <clears throat> there was an established religion in England, the, the Church of English was established. When people came here, the idea was, can we try something new? You know, what if we looked at religion a little differently? Catholics were persecuted in England, but when they came to Maryland, they had some freedom. I mean, the with the letter that went with them said something like to the Catholics, you know, kind of don't make waves. I think it said, be at peace with all your neighbors. And the idea was, if you can, can not complicate anyone else's lives, we can let you practice your Catholicism. And that was happening in lots of places, right? The Puritans were trying this new Calvinism thing out and the Mennonites and people were, were trying new ways of being religious. And the idea was if government stayed out of it, then all of these people could, could kind of think of these things through to their ends and see what it really looks like. Yeah, which was pretty radically new. I mean, there were pockets of it, but it was pretty radically new from like 320, 325. I always get this date wrong. Um, yeah. right when, when Constantine like makes everybody Christian, right? So it's right. pretty radically new because the entanglement of politics and religion or, or government and religion was so strong throughout much of like Western European Christian history, right? Through the Middle Ages, through, you have all those weird moments of like popes crowning kings and kings naming popes. Like it was a right, lot right. of right. messy. Messy. <laughs> Before 
really messy. Um, and then you end up right with like multiple popes running around and different people. <laughs> like my favorite like, time in history. <laughs> like divine right of kings, like all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, so this was very radically new. I mean, again, like pockets get like um, King Sigismund in Transylvania, who we Unitarians love to, you know, talk right. about. But these moments, isolated moments of like religious tolerance or religious freedom, but ultimately it was a pretty radically new way of looking at it. And mm -hmm. still we're talking about people who were like pretty universally religious and were not going to be living their lives without that informing how they lived. Right. Um, right. So I, I was listening to all things considered on NPR yesterday, mm -hmm. I think, and they were talking exactly sort of about this because um, with Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme court, right. They were talking about how she was saying that her religious, cause she was raised in that particular religious, um, forget what it's called now, of course, already. Yeah. Um, but like together. Pretty strict sort of religious, um, Christian religious group. And she's saying that won't impact how I make my rulings right? It won't impact my rulings. But the person that was on All Things Considered was like, actually, um, if you look at her record, she votes consistent with the beliefs of the group. And it's a fine and fuzzy line, right? Like to ask someone to, to completely set aside their religion, their social location, their, like it's impossible. You can't be that objective. I don't think it exists actually. Um, and so I, I always think of it as like a fiction. It's a fiction in this country that somehow religion shouldn't impact. And for religion, you could stand in ethics, morals, value systems, right? Shouldn't mm -hmm. impact your voting. I think it should. I think it does. Maybe I think it does and you can't deny it. <laughs> well, I think it should too. I mean, if it, if it has any meaning, if it's in any way relevant, then it should. And it has to, and there's no way to separate us from our value systems. We can judge each other on what those values are or where we get them, but there's no way to, to, to disentangle us from those systems. I think you said something really important before, and I want to double back to it about, um, like the sort of note that went out to the Catholics that was like, as long as you can like back off of everyone else, you can come and hang. And I think that often that's how I'll talk about it. Like in, in the Unitarian Universalist context is like, we are cool with whatever your value system and belief system is gonna be, as long as it does not infringe on another person's right to life, to health, to safety, to freedom, right? So when when it's like um, the I what the other thing they were talking about on this uh, radio show was about um, the the firing of trans folks, right? That um, that the that the current administration is attempting to sort of wedge in this thing or or this ruling that would be around if you have a religious objection to trans folks, then you should be allowed to fire them, right? Which is like. Why should, and I think it's, I think this is fundamentally antithetical to the whole founding of this country, your religious feeling should not impede my life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? That like your religious objection is not more important than my existence. Is that right? You know, it's interesting when like Catholics first came here, right? And they had this, be at peace with all your neighbors. 
They were. They were amazingly, and Amy Coney Barrett defines herself as Catholic, even though she's been part of this radical group. But they did that. They really backed off and they they practiced in a in a an intentionally apolitical way until they were persecuted. And so it worked out just fine until the Irish started showing up and then the Italians and the Germans and, and all these Catholics were showing up and the Protestant Americans were incredibly, I mean, we would call it racist, although today we would call all those people white, which is an interesting other note, but- That's another topic for another day. Right. <laughs> how we how we make white people, but but there was this um, in that leadership then said, you know what we're gonna we're gonna amp this up instead of instead of backing off like we have been, we're gonna be even more Catholic, and we're gonna we have no choice but to get out in the front line and to show you what we really believe and what this really looks like, and and in some way to close ranks. You know, while they were trying to live in an interfaith world, they actually became far more conservative as a result of uh, the oppression that they were experiencing. There is this, um, what I would call a made-up oppression <laughs> that white Protestant people seem to be feeling right now, this like victimization, and then and doing the same kind of thing of like, um, closing ranks and trying to force a value system on the rest of the world. The difference is that when the Irish were doing it, they were a tiny little minority. And when white Protestant Americans are doing it here, they're a massive majority. And it becomes um, a, a huge cultural wave so that, so we end up having conversations like, can you fire a trans person, which seems, from my worldview, not only wildly unethical, but a bizarre thing to even consider because why does whether or not someone is trans have anything to do with whether or not they can do the job? Right? It's so incongruent to me. Well, it's the same, right, with like the, the religious objection to birth control, right? So I can deny health insurance because I don't think birth control, right? It's, it's all about that question of what what value system gets to be in charge and for who, right? And what I think is so interesting is at the same time that we have this like really intense, like church and state must be separate mythology, we also have what you're identifying, which is like this sort of rampant, like, but white Christianity, Protestant white Christianity is the religion of America. And we should be able to, you know, say under God in the, you know, Pledge of Allegiance and have the Ten Commandments in a courthouse and da 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 da, right? Like, so it's this fascinating, like, hypocrisy, like where it sort of goes both ways of like, on the one hand, I want separation when it's convenient. And I, and I think that that's so important to the founding. And on the other hand, like, don't you dare make us be anything less than a Christmas celebrating Protestant white people, you know? Um, and that's, it's hard to like live with those two right. forces kind of coming at you. Um, right. Well, the Christianity has so saturated our culture that we really don't separate it. Like the average person doesn't separate Christianity from American, being American very well. So that the idea that a Christmas tree should be in every town, it just doesn't occur to anybody that 
that's really not actually okay, or that, that it's only okay if the town is also celebrating Ramadan or right. recognizing Diwali. I mean, what else are we doing as a town to celebrate faith? Or is it just your faith that needs to be celebrated? I think what's interesting too um, is the that identification, right? And this is this is going in an unexpected way, I think, um, in my mind at least, based on something you said a moment ago, it's sort of wrapping in this question of race, right? Which is another, again, another conversation for another day, but I don't think that they are distinct, which is to say the the deeply entrenched sense of American culture being white, cisgender, male, Protestant, right? That deeply held sort of thing around what it is to be American makes any equalization seem like attack, right? Like in other words, putting a menorah next to the Christmas tree in the apartment building is not an attack on Christmas. And yet somehow it's the, for some folks, there's like this such a deeply, so saying black lives matter is not an attack on white people. And yet for so many people, they're reacting like it is, right? Like, and I think that that's where I'm sort of in my head, I'm sort of thinking about that sense of like, so what do we identify culturally in our heritage as like Americanness, right? And it is that separation of church and state, but it's also that white Protestant male stuff, right? And how does that all get tangled up? And what does it mean for when out in the streets are people of color, trans people, liberal religious folks asking for something different, demanding something different? How does that all, you know, kind of comes to a head in a summer of protest, right? <laughs> So I think that the question um, for me is sort of what's our place? What's our role as religious people? What are we supposed to be doing in all of this? <clears throat> and so my introduction to religion, I grew up in a secular home, but my introduction to religion was liberation theology. It was really Central and South American Catholics who were rereading the Bible and saying, hold on, <laughs> this actually says like, you know, there's an option for the poor. And it doesn't say poor in spirit, actually. It's just talking about poor people. People don't have money and, and we don't have money. And there are systems that keep us poor and oppressed. And our faith tells us that it shouldn't be this way, and that Jesus came to liberate people just like us. That was my introduction. So my introduction to faith was very political. I read from and that whole kind of, you know, when you feed people, you feed people, because that's supposed to be something religious people do. Someone is hungry and you give them food. But then when a priest would ask, well, why are they hungry? It, suddenly it's political. Now that's a political question. Why are people hungry? Yeah, but it's the right question. <laughs> it's the right question, right? Um, right? I mean, you can't just keep feeding people. You have to at some point say, how do we stop them from being hungry? So for religious people, we have to ask ourselves, you know, do we really just stop at the feeding? Do we just like go to church and sing about liberation? Or do we take it out into the world? And then how do we embody that 
in a voting booth, like in all the different places. And what you're saying is how do we at the same time, like it or not, allow other people of different faiths with different systems bring their faith into the public arena also, even though we completely disagree with them. And that's, I mean, there's a real question, like, is it, you know, if you're a baker, do you have to bake a cake for a gay couple? And those are real questions. Yeah. I mean, and and for me, yes, you do, right? Like on some level, I sort of feel like, yes, because that's, you're in the world of commerce and you, your discrimination is not like, if, if you make delicious cakes and a gay couple wants your cake for their wedding, like make the damn cake, you know? Um, but do you, but do you uh, have to bake a cake for a Nazi? Yeah, I know, I know. This is the problem. So this is where it always goes, right? And this is the like, this is the fuzziness, right? So sometimes in my head, I go around in a circle about like, well, is it the difference between like, oppressing someone for who they are, a thing that is inherent to them and unchangeable, right? Like we believe, right, that um, LGBTQ folks are who they, they're not making a choice to, that they are who they are, right? And it's an uncovering of them, sorry, say that again? Born that way. Right, right, born that way, right? Um, cue the Lady Gaga. Um, but like, right, so that there's a difference between oppressing someone for a thing that is just fundamental to their being, right? And again, I go in circles on this in my own head <clears throat> versus like, you don't have to be a Nazi. You're not born that way, right? Like you learn to be a Nazi. So like, I, I think there's a difference between saying, no, I'm not going to bake your cake depicting horrifying genocide, but that's different from, no, I'm not going to depict your cake with two men kissing, right? Like I don't, or your baker cake depicting two men kissing, right? Like I think those are really different. Um, and again, for me, the sort of the more I, I sort of develop in my own thinking around this stuff, it fundamentally has to do with is the thing that you're being or doing or thinking causing other people to live their lives in a more limited or more, um, uh, strange or oppressed way. So in other words, um, it, someone, I, we knew someone who was like super against gay marriage and the articulation was it will somehow make marriage worse for women in heterosexual relationships. And I never understood. I mean, I still don't to this day understand that argument. Um, but that was sort of like in this person's mind, it was like, somehow this is going to impact this objective reality. It doesn't. Um, and so that's not an okay reason, right? Like denying someone else the right to be who they are when they're, they're being who they are is not going to have any negative effects on the world at large, but is only about your feeling of what's right or wrong, right? For me, that's like the line. Like I don't get to decide for other people what's right or wrong, except if what they're doing is making other people right or wrong. <laughs> it's like that kind of a, right? Like it's that yeah. limit. Um, I think yeah. the question for me is, is um, does it liberate? Yeah. So, so if it oppresses, then, right. you know, then, then no, you can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Right out. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a great measuring stick, right? Does it liberate? And the problem is it's not everybody's measuring stick, which is fascinating. Like, you know, if we go back for a hot second to Jesus himself, right? Supposedly the center of Christianity, right? Like, that was a liberating message. And it wasn't just, 
I'm going to like go give some extra money to the folks that like the money lenders are cheating. It was like, I'm going to go into the temple and upend all the tables, right? Like, and that's, it's your point about the soup kitchen, right? Like it's not enough to just feed people at the soup kitchen. You have to create the world where the soup kitchen isn't necessary. Um, And it's fascinating how far, I mean, fascinating in a bad way, how far much of Christianity strayed from that very central question of, is this liberating, right? Um, Because I don't, yeah, go ahead. Because Christianity became political instantly. I mean, as soon as, as Constantine made it the law of the land, now all of the bishops who'd been persecuted for all that time suddenly had power and they weren't going to let that go. And, and then used it and integrated Christianity into Roman culture and then into the whole Christian empire forever up until now. And this post-Constantinian Christianity is political. I mean, that's, that's what it's been. We have never been able to really separate the structures from, you know, the, the political structures from the religious structures. Yeah. Yeah, which makes it even more um, fascinating that that was part of the American experiment, right? Like that makes it even more significant. Like what they were trying to do was so valuable, really, sort of in the history of of church and state and trying to disentangle um, insidious church power over laws and things. And at the same time, the reality is all of us all of us vote according to our values. There's not some objective tool at work. Like that's, we're human beings. We have a location, we have an identity, we have a, you know, a religious value system that our minister's chirping in our ear or, you know, rabbi every Sunday or Saturday or whatever. Like it just, it's not escapable. And so the question I think becomes, are you voting, are you, is it liberating, right? So are you voting your values in a way that is only about you or are you voting your values in a way that's about everybody? Um, and then like, are you really voting your values, <laughs> right? That's the other question. Um, so uh, I realize that we're coming to the end of our time and we uh, always have a moment of action. And it does sound like our moment of action is bring your values to the, to the voting booth. Yeah. Vote your values. And, and ask yourself the question, does it liberate? Yeah. Will my vote liberate or right. does it oppress? Yeah. Which, I mean, is itself a question of values, right? If, it's sort of a circular thing, right? Because if your value centers on liberation, then that's the question you'll ask. Um, but yeah. But I will say, so I think this does lead to our moment of um, hope as well, which is, you know, you sort of started by... Um, bringing up this whole, like it's the summer of protest, right? And I actually think, I wanna say that that's actually where the hope lies because it, it what it means is that people are asking themselves maybe more now than ever, is this position, is this system, is this institution, is our nation liberating or oppressing? And then when they have that answer, no, they're doing something about it, right? And they're and they're trying to make their values and their voices and their positions heard. And I think that in and of itself is hopeful. Amen. <laughs> it absolutely is. So everyone go vote. <laughs> or send in your ballots, whatever, <laughs> whichever way. Yeah.
It's great to podcast with you again, Sarah. I feel like there's a, a lot of other things we could say about this topic. Um, oh my god! Maybe we'll revisit <laughs> it sometime. I don't have a time limit. I, I do too. I feel like there's a lot to talk about, but I'm glad we at least got started. Yes, yes, and we will um, be putting out more video versions of our podcast soon. All right. Thanks, Peggy. Thanks, Sarah.